Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guests are John O'Neill and Sarah Wynn. John is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Unfit for Command, and along with Amazon's number three bestseller, The Fisherman's Tomb. John graduated from the United States Naval Academy in 1967 and after decorated service in Vietnam, finished as the top graduate of the University of Texas School of Law. Following a clerkship with Chief Justice William Rehnquist at the United States Supreme Court, John successfully tried several hundred cases and arbitrations, including representation for the People's Republic of China in their first U.S. litigation. He declined any further representation of the PRC, after the massacre at Tiananmen Square. Sarah Wynn, as I said, co-authored The Fisherman's Tomb with John, currently being made into a feature film, and River Royals, Master the Mississippi, winner of a Mom's Choice Award. She graduated from the University of Texas with both a law degree and undergraduate business degree with high honors, and after practicing as a litigator with an international law firm, Wynn embarked on a second career as an artist in Houston, where she lives with her husband and children. But today, both John and Sarah are joining me to discuss their new book called The Dancer and the Devil, Stalin, Pavlova, and the Road to the Great Pandemic, a very provocative title indeed. John and Sarah, welcome. Thank you very Hi, much. Good Tom. morning. I guess when I first heard about this book, the first thing that hit me is, what in the world does a ballet dancer from the early 20th century have to do with Stalin or the great pandemic? And why did you pick her as kind of a centerpiece for the book? At the Tehran conference, Stalin talked to Churchill and Stalin proposed the execution of a million Germans. And Churchill said, we can't, we're Christians. And Stalin said, God may be a Christian, but the devil is a good communist said to Churchill, if we kill uh, a million people, it's just a statistic. But if we kill a single person and it becomes known, it can be a great tragedy. 
So Stalin sort of led our way. Stalin engaged in Litornoi killings of hundreds, and Litornoi killing is a secret liquidation using false suicides, phony suicides, or poisons. And he got rid of people that he, he couldn't openly get rid of and that were too prominent to disappear. Of course, he killed maybe 20 million in addition. And so it occurred to us to take some of those people and do exactly what Stalin didn't want done to actually tell their stories to the modern world so people could look at the people he killed. And the first of those was Pavlova, the greatest dancer probably in human history, a ballerina who everyone would love and who only a monster could have killed. And that's how we picked Pavlova. What is it that Stalin had against her? Was she actively political, anti-communist? No, uh, she became a great ballerina in Imperial Russia. And when the Russian Revolution came, she happened to be in the West. She was actually a reformer, but she was famous for a dance called the Dying Swan. And the Dying Swan is the ballet of a swan who's in the process of death. And it tells the story of the tragedy of death and of the power of resurrection at the same time. She was very religious. The dances she danced were all the dances of old Russia. The Nutcracker, Swan Lake, Prince Charming. Well, Stalin lived in a world where there couldn't be a Prince Charming, where there couldn't be a Nutcracker. So in 1927, he summoned her back to Russia. He actually sent her mother in 26 to bring her back in a deal called Operation Trust. She wouldn't come back. And so he denounced her as an enemy of the Soviet people. He seized her trust that she had set up for little children in Russia. And in 1929, he embarked upon poisoning her to death using a group of poisoners in Russia, in, in Paris, France, called the Yasha. Vladimir Putin picked the Yasha gang as the greatest of all foreign agents that the Soviet Union's ever had. And the Yasha gang poisoned many different Russians in Paris and others in the 1920s and 1930s. They were all executed by Stalin in the late 1930s. What he had against her, he had to control. Stalin believed that you had to control not only the means of production, not only the businesses, Tom, you had to control the actual language and culture of people. So he said, for example, I will abolish the word God. By 1935, the word God will no longer exist in the Russian language. In terms of music, when he went to the Ukraine, he gathered all the musicians called Kobars together, 359 of them in Kiev, supposedly to form a union. They took him out of town and they killed all 359 of them and dumped their bodies into a grave. So Stalin believed you had to control music, culture, art, language. And the greatest obstacle in the world for a time to that was Anna Pavlova, the world's greatest ballet dancer and the symbol of old Russia. I think a lot of people forget that 1984, which is imbued in everyone's consciousness as the ultimate totalitarian government, was based on Stalin's Russia. And as you say, it was a lot more than controlling the means of production, that while communism was first and foremost an economic system, that in order to maintain that system, you needed a totalitarian government that for a long time, what was going on in Russia was somewhat suppressed. And I think where you're coming from in this book is that to a great extent, a lot of people don't realize just how terrible it was. Well, the problem that Marxism has is they promise equality, but every single place they ever exist, they end up delivering slavery for the vast mass of people 
with people at the very top, like Putin, who lives in a billion and a half dollar house, or Xi, who lives on top of a hill in a huge estate, while the average guy is suppressed, he has no economic or political freedom. And so they get a guy like you, Tom, and you say, why? Why is this? They can't tolerate somebody saying why. They can't debate a Tom Mullen. They have to just kill you, Tom. They have to wipe you out or me or anyone. And so the means of doing that are in Stalin, Russia, literally killings. If you had someone prominent like you or simply disappear the person as they did to hundreds of thousands. The book tells the story of the Lyubyanka, a single uh, building in the head of the KGB in Moscow. There were over 400,000 people executed in the Lyubyanka in that single building in the Stalin years through 1939. In addition to poisoning people who, whether intentionally or not, might be dangerous to the regime, poisoning individuals, also the use of biological weapons over the history of the Soviet Union. What are a few examples of those and how do they relate to everything you just talked about? Well, what happened is Stalin began with individual literally killings, individual liquidations, where all of a sudden you'd have pneumonia, Tom, and people would say, gee, poor Tom. And it wasn't really pneumonia. What you had was anthrax, but people couldn't detect it in those days. Having killed people secretly, by 1925, Stalin said, hey, what a good idea this is. If I can kill people individually, how about if I can kill nations individually? And Stalin began the first huge bioweapons programs ever begun at a city called Saratov and in the Urals. These spread to China ultimately and to Wuhan. The first big leak bioweapons that ever occurred long before Wuhan was at Saratov in Russia in 1939, as the book relates, and due to a brave Russian who communicated the story, Stalin summoned the head of the bioweapons program to Russia. He went to a uh, hotel, the Hotel Nacional, the evening before he was going to meet with Stalin, he started coughing. And a doctor came to the hotel named Abram Berlin. And the doctor looked at him, he said, my God, you've got pneumonic plague. We haven't seen pneumonic plague in Moscow in 300 years. Well, the guy was in the process of weaponizing pneumonic plague. If they hadn't detected it, he would have wiped out the entire leadership of the Soviet Union, which would have been a very good thing. <laughs> that would have been the end of Stalin, Barry, and the rest of them. Well, what they did, of course, uh, those guys all died, either by execution or from pneumonic plague, which was inevitably fatal. And they got the entire hotel, purged the whole hotel, cleaned it out, and said there was a plumbing failure, and then hit it for until the 1990s. That was the first leak. The, the second big leak was in 1979 at a Cottonburg, when anthrax leaked, a plume of anthrax went as far as 40 kilometers. The Soviets said it was tainted meat from a meat market, if you've heard that before. And uh, they shot dogs and tried two butchers for selling tainted meat. In reality, they'd forgotten to put a screen up on their bioweapons lab and had anthrax 638 killing nearly a thousand people. The same thing happened in China in 1977, as related in the book. There's no dispute on the stories, but they're basically concealed because people are afraid of the truth. And I really believe that, as Martin Luther King said and John before him, that the truth really makes you free. So the first step is we've got to get to what actually happened to the truth. You associate 
biological weapons with the communists. What would you say to somebody who says, well, look, the United States has lots of biological weapons labs, and this is nothing that is unique to the communists. And while, of course, these lab leaks that you're talking about are dangerous, that this isn't anything special to a Putin or a Xi. You've got to distinguish between a bio lab and a bio war lab. There are a million bio labs. The United States has 40,000 of them. When you get blood to see if you're sick, it goes to a bio lab. And there's nothing wrong at all with the bio lab. A bio war lab exists to actually weaponize viruses and bacteria. The United States at one time had bio war labs. In 1972, the whole world got together in what was called the BWC, the Biological Warfare Convention. And everyone banned bio war labs. And the United States became totally unprepared in the whole area. We couldn't even cope with COVID-19. We didn't even have masks. That's how unprepared we were. Our biggest carrier, the Abraham Lincoln, had to pull into port from debilitating bio war deal. Meanwhile, the Soviet Union started what was called Project Enzyme. We know about it from defectors in the Soviet Union. They were investing more money in bio-war facilities after 1972 than they were in nuclear weapons. And they discontinued them in the Yeltsin years. And Putin has invested big time in them again. He bragged in the 2012 presidential debate about his bioweapons, and he suspended all inspections in 2014. Exactly the same thing has quietly occurred in China. There are 14 huge bioweapons labs in China, including one in Wuhan. We've seen the effect of a leak of a debilitating disease from that single laboratory. So it's a terrible threat to mankind. The United States certainly has pharmaceutical research that ought to be regulated. And we ought to look at really closely and we ought to regulate. But we're not in the business of weaponizing viruses. None of us are immunized anymore for smallpox. I am because I'm so old, but nobody else. Smallpox exists in two places. It exists in China and it exists in Russia in labs. And the purpose of it is to weaponize. You can imagine the effect if somebody in Kansas and all of a sudden we lose 30 million people from smallpox and the folks in Russia say, oh, gee, that's a shame. We started immunizing everybody three years ago and it's a shame you guys didn't do it. These are called special weapons. Their purpose is to evade the nuclear stalemate. If Russia launches a nuclear weapon on us, we're going to launch one on them. It's mutually assured destruction. But if somebody coughs in Kansas, we don't know where it came from. We are not going to react very strongly. And so that's why both Putin and Xi have talked about their special weapons programs. Where do they tie in to Pavlova? They're the logical continuation of what actually happened in both Russia and in China. In the course of our research, we learned that the Russian military practices one of five days a week in hazmat suits. And the only reason they would do that would be in preparation for a chemical war that they started. They would be prepared and the rest of the world not. In other words, if you're in the Russian army, one out of every five days, you're preparing for biological warfare. From where? From us? We don't have any biological war weapons. No, that's an offensive they're preparing for. And that, of course, is the threat in the Ukraine. The Marines at Maripol have claimed that chemical weapons were used on them. The Russians have said, we were not using biological, we were just using special weapons. And the truth of what they used, we don't know yet. That's to try and get the civilians and the Marines who are down in the basements trying to hold on of a steel plant in Maripol in the Ukraine. 
Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. We help each other when we don't mean to. That's what we call the invisible hand. Something no politician understands. Just leave it up to supply and demand and follow the golden. You see Putin and Xi as continuations of Stalin and Mao, the communist tradition in those countries. And I think people wouldn't be surprised by Xi, who's seen to have reversed somewhat the movement towards a more market economy in China. But I think Putin's a more interesting character because he makes a lot of anti-communist statements. And then again, he makes a lot of affectionate statements towards people like Lenin and Stalin. So how do you describe Putin, his ideology, and why is he more Stalin than, let's say, Yeltsin? It's important to know somebody's family and their background. Putin's grandfather was Stalin's cook and his taster. That was the guy that was there the night Stalin probably got poisoned. But at any rate, he was Stalin's cook and his Putin's father was an exterminator for the KGB in the Ukraine. In other words, he followed behind the Red Army troops in the Ukraine in World War II and shot people in the back of the head that were suspected of being collaborators. He was an executioner. Putin is just a chip off the old KGB block. He has always idolized Stalin. For example, he pretends to be religious at times, like this past weekend. And then he says that Lenin and Stalin should be saints in the Christian church. (laughs) Uh, Lenin and Stalin killed 175,000 Orthodox priests. They believe that churches are places like drunk tanks, where you take people who happen to believe in religion, you help them to sort of recover from it. And the Russian Orthodox Church, which they control, has been kicked out of the Orthodox Church movement. So that's who Putin is. And heart and soul of Putin is Stalin, with even more than uh, Xi. Xi has said, you can't be a good communist if you don't believe in Stalin. Of course, what Stalin added to Lenin and the others was the idea that you control all aspects of human life, that it's not enough to control the banks and the oil companies. You have to control the thoughts, Tom, that you have. You have to control the words you use, eliminate, like, talks freedom. <laughs> what do you mean? Those are words, <laughs> you know, that those are terrible those are words, Tom. Words. Those yeah. are fighting words. <laughs> we need to get rid of talks freedom in two seconds. And that's she's world. She can't afford to have a talks freedom because she lives in a world 
And Putin lives in a world where they live in fabulous homes and everybody else in terms of intellectual freedom is repressed and often economically lives pretty poorly. If I can jump in, I thought it was interesting that Putin's former mentor, when Putin was first elected in 1999, his mentor was a man named Anatoly Sobchak. And Sobchak was asked his opinion of Putin, much like you just asked John his opinion. And he said, Putin is Stalin. He's the new Stalin. The following week, he had a heart attack and his two underlings, bodyguards, bodyguards also had heart attacks, none of the three of which had coronary issues. In other words, Tom, he said, they asked him, who is Putin? He says, Putin is the new Stalin. Two days later, he has a fatal heart attack and both of his bodyguards have simultaneous heart attacks. He dies from his heart attack. The other guys go in critical, critical condition, condition, you know. So there was a sudden outbreak of coronary disease, it's typical <laughs> of, of the many people that Putin has poisoned and killed, like Stalin. When you talk about the Wuhan lab, so we've had a funny kind of history of talking about the Wuhan lab. In 2020, you weren't allowed to say that perhaps the virus might have come from there. I don't know exactly what the mainstream opinion is now. I have a feeling that most people consider it likely that that's where the COVID-19 virus came from and that not only did it escape from there, but it was a monkeyed with virus, so to speak. It was manipulated with gain of function methods. But I think most people also think that the U.S. government had something to do with funding the lab, if not funding exactly that research. How does that fit into your thesis? Well, first on where COVID-19 came from, we, we have an awful lot of evidence that points directly to where it came from. 96.2%, the virus has never been found naturally anywhere in the world. The COVID-19 virus, until it outbroke on the steps of the Wuhan lab, literally 280 feet from it, had never, never been found. There are no cases of it. There's been sort of a shrike hunt, you know, a hunt for a fictitious animal for the past three years trying to find it. No one's ever found it anywhere except there where it actually began in, in nature. Now, 96.2% of it comes from horseshoe bats found in a cave out in the Himalayas and brought to the Wuhan lab in 2015. We know that because they bragged about it, because there are articles about it. And we're running these tests on these horseshoe bats. That accounts for 96.2% of the virus, but 3.8% of it has never been found anywhere. The hook on it, the thing that makes it so communicable, resembles very much things devised in the United States earlier at the University of North Carolina. And so we did fund the Wuhan lab. And in 2015, we, we barred it and we cut off all funding. And then it appears NIH funded it indirectly through another company who continued funding, it, even though the conclusion over and over again was it was very dangerous. I personally don't think it leaked directly out of the Wuhan lab. Uh, paralleling the Wuhan lab is a shadow facility called the Wuhan Military Lab. Now, its job isn't to develop vaccines, Tom. Its job isn't to test people's blood. Its job is to develop weapons to kill people. It's one of the largest military bio labs in the world, and it weaponizes viruses. I think that, and I'll explain why, I think it was in the process of developing a vaccine for COVID-19 and it escaped in the course of vaccine trials. I didn't just make that up. In 1977, the whole world suffered from a virus. I, I remember getting it, I couldn't go to work for two weeks. It killed millions of people. It came from China, but what was inexplicable was a flu virus 
And it was exactly the same. I mean, exactly the same as a flu virus from 1955. Flu viruses mutate constantly. This is like Tom Mullen of 1990 being exactly the same as Tom Mullen 2022. It can't happen. So everybody if said, only. Well, <laughs> if only. So everybody said, wait a second, somebody has preserved the 55 virus. Somebody has preserved it because it couldn't exist except in cold storage. And the Chinese said, no, not us. We don't know anything about it. And so we don't know where it came from. In 1994, the head of the Chinese virology programs admitted, yes, we preserved the 1955 virus. And we were in the course of doing vaccine tests with the army. And I think it's very important with the army. And it just got away from us. And he died a couple of days later after making that admission. So that's where they've done exactly the same thing before. In the case of the 1977 flu virus, it killed millions of people, nothing like COVID-19, but it killed millions of people and they had the same lies. Now it's a wet market lie and so on. So there's overwhelming evidence that they created this terrible bug. Remember, it's the first artificial virus, as far as we know, that man has ever faced. Every other virus has come from nature. This is actually a creation of man. And that's why it mutates so quickly and why there's so much about it we can't figure out. Another interesting thing that makes it different, it has what's called a furin cleavage site that no other virus in the family of viruses has. And interestingly, from what we understand, it's exactly 12 bars of RNA long, which precision like that just doesn't happen in nature. Interesting. So given everything that you've amassed here, all this research going back to the beginning of the communist era in Russia, why is it important today that people know this history and understand Xi and Putin the way you want them to? Well, of course, they're the two most powerful single figures on earth. They're threatening now the Ukraine and Taiwan, maybe tomorrow, Poland, maybe next week a lot of other countries, and ultimately us, we have absolutely no defense at this time to bioweapons. So we need to get in the game and develop our own defenses. I mean, we didn't even have masks on or ventilators. That's how unprepared and how really inept we were. We need to get ready for the problem of bioweapons. We need to actually bring public pressure on the communist countries to get rid of their bioweapons programs. We need to understand the nature of Putin and Xi. Unfortunately, we've got all kinds of people in the United States who look at the prospect of a material heaven right here. It's going to all be equity. We're all going to be equal, but they never look at the reality of communist countries that are supremely unequal, where power is retained only through terror, through literally killings, through the people Putin's in the process of killing right now. And so what's important, it's important for people to know the truth. I think that that's the most important single starting point. And then we need to get prepared. We basically need to understand what we're confronting, that we're confronting terrible people and an ideology that is truly an awful, awful ideology in terms of the enslavement of man. Anything to add, Sarah? I think as we've discussed many times, running from the truth doesn't make our fears go away. It's still there. So I think we need to be educated on this subject. And it's a scary, frightening subject. And it's not one that we talk about happily, but I think the world needs to be educated on what's happening. The the other thing I think, Tom, is the people that are in the book, I thought to myself, these are people that Putin and she want to disappear. 
They don't want people to know about people like Pavlova or Diagolov, the gay showman who was the great showman that they poisoned, or the Nobel Prize winner imprisoned and denied medical treatment in China and then killed that way, or Fan Bingbing, China's greatest star, was disappeared into the Chinese gulag. And so how about we do something that they don't want? How about we actually tell people about the people they disappeared? How about people actually learn about Fan Bingbing and Pavlova and all the people that Stalin and Putin and Xi, evil people that they are, tried to hide from the world and tried to disappear? Well, if we have just a minute, I'll tell you, we learned that they don't like us researching and writing this book. My computer was actually hacked and we got a computer forensic expert involved. One morning I started working on the manuscript and I was the only one that had access to the manuscript. John didn't even have access. And it showed that our manuscript had been opened at 4 a.m. Well, that's odd. And then a few days later, again, I woke up in the morning, started to work on the manuscript and everything had been deleted. All of our previous saved manuscripts were gone. And we were able to determine through this computer forensic expert, it wasn't my hard drive that was hacked in my Wi-Fi system, but it was breached in the cloud. And fortunately, I'd saved it on a flash drive. When we went to get the book published, we had people that said, look, if you'll just delete the Chi part of the book, you'll just delete the China part of the book, we'll be happy to publish it and we'll pay you a bunch of money and so on. That's how thoroughly Chi has buffaloed New York and how terrified they are of these guys in New York. Well, we're not terrified of anybody. And so that's well, why speak we for yourself. <laughs> I'm not super I'm comfortable, sorry. but at I'm the sorry. same time, it's truth that needs to get out. I'm just teasing. <laughs> anyway, that's the purpose of the book is to try and get the truth to people. Because this is a wonderful country, Tom, we live in. It really is. And human freedom, you know, as you talk, is the greatest thing. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It allows us to believe different things, practice the religion we want or not practice as you choose to, and gives our kids wonderful opportunities. It's really worth writing this book for and going through a lot of trouble to try and save. All right, folks. Well, the book is called The Dancer and the Devil, Stalin, Pavlova, and the Road to the Great Pandemic. I will, of course, have a link so that you can pick it up on the show notes page. And John and Sarah, thanks so much for coming on and talking about it. Thank you very much. Enjoyed talking to you. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. If you haven't already, don't forget to download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, You can hear more at TomMullenSings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.